Welcome back to Fontanelle for a bumper episode on abdominal pain by Mark Tai, paediatrician in Poole. In part one, Mark will take us through some acute presentations covering appendicitis, testicular torsion and intersusception, as well as the wide group of differentials that can present in a similar fashion. We'll talk about important features in the history and examination, when to refer and when investigations are warranted. After discussing the management of these conditions, Mark will then go on to describe that nebulous group of conditions causing recurrent abdominal pain. He divides these up helpfully into those affecting the upper, mid and lower GI tract. He'll then go on to talk about biophysical remodelling, the role of anxiety and how this potentiates the enteric nervous system. So if you're already up to speed on the acute causes of abdominal pain, I'd fast forward to around the 19 minute mark where you can catch some nuggets about the enteric nervous system, the role of stress and ways of reframing pain, helping doctors help families to help themselves to normalise and manage the pain. I really like Mark's insight that pain is not caused by a shortage of investigations and that Therefore, once we've ruled out medical organic causes, we really need to recognise that the child in front of us does have functional pain, and this is real and can be addressed using the measures he describes. I think the, the overall things to say about abdominal pain is that it's you know frequent in children and it's very concerning for parents with a wide range of differentials. What we were aiming to do in this podcast is to perhaps capture a couple of acute presentations that can often be a dilemma in a GP setting um, and then chat through the management of recurrent abdominal pain, which mm. is a much more chronic uh, presentation with much more nebulous um and a different distressing range of symptoms mm. um but actually in the with the right management um a huge amount of anxiety can be taken out uh of from parents um and you can put pot the child on a road to recovery yeah that's great because i find that once i've ruled out the um, dangerous things actually one of the hardest things can be to explain to parents that their child is okay yeah, but still coping with pain mm, and that, that's so some pointers for that would be really useful absolutely so the first the first presentation we were going to uh, chat about was um, one example that I normally put out which is a, an 11 year old girl who's had a 12 hour history of abdominal pain and has wait and has vomited in the GP waiting area and the questions to really think about are what would you as a clinician ask what would you assess on examination and what are the practical considerations in their management mm. so the first thing to say is is that um, trying to differentiate in the history conclusively can be tricky, but there are definite pointers that can point more towards, for example, a mesenteric adenitis than to an appendicitis. Um, so, for example, recent upper respiratory tract infection and presence of cervical lymphadenopathy can suggest more mesenteric adenitis. If there's a significant history of diarrhea, that can point more towards a gastroenteritis. Um, and it's important to kind of do a detailed history of how the bowel habit has been in the past 
few days and weeks because uh, constipation is a frequent differential diagnosis mm. in this situation. In pubertal girls, definitely consider the twisted ovarian cyst ectopic pregnancy scenario. Um, although parents worry a lot about a grumbling appendix, um, the evidence for this is very poor and the vast majority of appendicitis uh, comes on as a very acute episode mm. with uh increased uh, abdominal pain centered on the umbilicus moving to the right iliac fossa associated with high temperatures uh, with guarding um, and peritonism evolving and they've normally got tachycardia um, and uh, may have a low blood pressure as a pointer to what's going on mm. um, in terms of other features on examination you'd look for the site of pain and check the right iliac fossa out um, and um, and also look for inguinal lymphadenopathy because that normally goes a, a bit more with mesenteric adenitis. Mm. In these patients, don't forget a blood glucose or a urine dip. Um, and if they're breathless, perhaps think about uh, listening to the chest as well in case of pneumonia mm. is giving diaphragmatic irritation. So yeah, if they're breathless, high temperature, and uh, an occasional cough, think about think about uh, an occult pneumonia. Mm. Um, we, of course, will be very happy to see those children in hospital because they are difficult to evaluate, and history and examination has a uh, has a good but not perfect sensitivity and specificity, and when complemented by blood tests including full blood count crp and an ultrasound our ability to uh, our sensitivity and specificity for managing these patients rises to about 98 99 um so yeah we'd be very happy to see them in terms of practical considerations if this child was a little bit younger under fives um, these are very uh, are very unlikely to be discussed with the surgeons in the local hospital mm -hmm. and are often straight referred through to Southampton in these younger children be aware that their symptoms can be a little bit vaguer because of their uh, ability uh, their communication issues um, and also an, uh, a more underdeveloped momentum does impair the localization of symptoms and there may not be an obvious right iliac fossa mass in these children we are starting to contemplate conservative management with intravenous antibiotics particularly if there is a nasty appendix abscess mm. once the appendix has burst and an obvious mass has formed around mm. it um, trying to go i understand from surgical colleagues that trying to go in and operate in these patients can be really difficult and you only appreciate it once you're in there so once the appendix is ruptured and then and a wall has formed okay, where the omentum has that, wrapped around do you expect that to um, take so normally that can normally the those are for these children who've presented with you know oh certainly over 48 hours worth of symptoms and they're some of these patients who've coped with their symptoms mm. for a week to 10 days or wow. more um, these children often have a very high raised CRP and persistent temperatures that's driven them uh, into hospital for further assessment. Um, in terms of looking at your underlying causes for appendicitis, um, it's thought that the lymph node swelling around the appendix, so lymphoid hyperplasia, accounts for about 60% 
of appendicitis. Um, Fecaliths and fecal stasis accounts for about 35%. Uh, Foreign bodies like parasitic worms account for 4% of appendicitis. And there are some rare ones such as carcinoid tumour of the or appendix or first presentation of Crohn's disease where the surgeons look in and as well as a chronically inflamed or perforated appendix, uh, there is surrounding terminal ileum thickening with fat wrapping um, or uh, cecal inflammation as well. So would those causes be diagnosed then during surgery or sort of after specimens have been sent to the lab and is there a follow-up then for to treat these underlying causes if necessary? Yes, so uh, generally uh, the follow-up is uh, put in place once the histology is back. If there's an obvious feature identified at the time of surgery, it would be important to discuss either with you know, say if a surgeon found those found those findings intraoperatively, important that he gives uh, the paediatric consultants a ring or um, the regional surgical specialists if they want further advice while the patient is on the table. Um, we do get called to patients who are being seen in clinic because of a surprise finding of carcinoid. Um, and again, identification of granulomas, say on histology, would mandate uh, referral to the tertiary centre mm. for endoscopy and biopsy and diagnosis of Crohn's disease. Okay, so that, that covers appendicitis. You were going to talk about uh, another type of presentation. Yes. So uh, the second presentation I was going to come on to was a, a, two, uh, a two-year-old boy who comes to the GP surgery drawing his legs up, screaming and uncomfortable. And again, what would you ask? What would you assess on examination? And are there any practical considerations? So when children present like this, the red flags um, and things that we can't afford to miss are intersusception and testicular torsion. Mm. Um, So the what we'd ask is how long ago this screaming episode had started um, is the child able to tolerate any food or fluids any temperatures any discoloration um, any uh, change in bowel habit recently um, any discomfort particularly on passing urine um, and Uh, any recent weight loss, any vomiting, particularly if it's bilious, that might point you towards a particularly a paediatric surgical cause. Uh, Any changes in the stool in terms of a bloody stool, Um, and I'll come on to chat about why that's important in intersusception Mm -hmm. in a minute. In terms of assessing on examination, often these things are really difficult to do practically because they're likely to be tachycardic because they're so stressed and often giving some analgesia if they're quite so upset and waiting for that to kick in is a a, a really useful a really useful step Um, the things that are useful to assess on examination as well as tachycardia includes respiratory rate oxygen saturations again to you know exclude an occult pneumonia um blood pressure if you can get that in the gp surgery would be really useful to make sure that this patient hasn't got hemodynamic instability um and then palpating the abdomen so particularly palpating the left eyelet fossa in case of the ubiquitous constipation, which is very common, um, or the right eyelet fossa, because if there's a sausage-shaped mass in the right eyelet fossa, that's likely to be intersusception. That can 
I absolutely agree, be difficult to feel in a young man who's drawing his legs up and screaming. Mm. Um, and it may be something that's a bit more obvious as the child falls asleep on their way to hospital mm. and then you can have a feel of their tummy in the buggy whilst they're, whilst they're fast asleep. Um, uh, also important to check check the um, young man's uh, genitalia and hernial orifices to make sure that there isn't a strangulated inguinal hernia mm -hmm. or testicular torsion. Uh, testicular torsion is an interesting one because there is a, a time pressure on this because if you don't restore the blood supply to the testicle within about 8 to 12 hours of mm -hmm. the uh, testicle torting, then it is highly unlikely that that testis is going to survive and be viable into the medium term. So in terms of distinguishing in within the scrotum, it can be really difficult, particularly if it's slightly red and slightly swollen. Um, so going through things in turn, uh, the torted testis is meant to be elevated and uh, sl and slightly twisted and will be slightly swollen and uh, and very tender to palpate mm. you can get uh, hydrocele's because of say a patent processus vaginalis and that could be prone to be infected for mm. example so that can be uh, reasonably that could be reasonably red um, the hydrocele does transilluminate fairly mm. well um, so that would be important to assess um, you shouldn't be able to get above and you should be able to push some of that in that um, gut tissue back up into the inguinal canal you may be able to hear bowel sounds there um, and um, you know and trying to reduce it and help it to go you know to go away particularly if it reoccurs when the child next strains or cough coughs it gives you a good idea that it is um, a, a, an inguinal hernia um, the next thing is is about uh, uh, investigation and transfer so in terms of where the patient is if the clock is ticking and you think this is a likely testicular torsion we would recommend chatting directly to the paediatric surgeons in Southampton mm -hmm. um, so we you know and, and my understanding is the paediatric surgical team are happy to take direct referrals from the GP for this because mm -hmm. they don't want to we don't want to miss any cases um, if um, in terms of uh, investigating in, in pool if we see a patient with testicular swelling and redness an ultrasound is useful but will come with the uh, catch-all uh, exclusion that you cannot exclude a testicular torsion on ultrasound that being said imaging of that area can still be quite useful but should be undertaken in experienced hands um, and isn't a rule in rule out of testicular torsion it's to investigate what's going on so for example then by doing an ultrasound you might find some another diagnosis exactly which would in effect rule out the torsion yes and well and save you the need yeah. save you the need for transfer um it will evaluate you know if you can do dopplers of the testicular blood flow and mm. that can give you an idea as to whether the blood flow is compromised mm. or not um if on the other hand you're in the middle of the night and a radiologist is unkeen to come in to do the uh, ultrasound then you may find yourself having to chat or I find myself having to chat to the paediatric surgical team because of the 
pressure and concern around uh, not missing a testicular torsion. Okay, so that's torsion. Let's just briefly cover the other differential that you mentioned for this presentation, intersusception. Intersusception in the two-year-old age group, um, it's where the proximal valve telescopes into the distal segment through the ileocecal valve and it drags along the mesentery with it and pinches off the tissue. So this is so it causes edema, ischemia and then bleeding uh, perforation and peritonitis. So the point where the tissue becomes ischemic is where you get the classic red currant jelly stool. Mm. Before then you can still have an intersusception. Um, so the absence of a red currant jelly stool doesn't exclude it. Um, it basically can occur really any age between three months to six years of age, but has been occasionally reported outside that age range. But 80% of our patients are less than the age of two, um, and the peak incidence is between six to 12 months. Boys slightly more likely to get it than girls, and it's the ileocecal valve that's the area of concern. You can get jejunal or uh, small bowel uh, intersusceptions that are identified even um, you know during surge abdominal surgery for other reasons and uh, that re reverses and doesn't cause any problem the problem of intersusception clinically is can be significant however um, with the ileocecal intersusception patients can be shocked with a high heart rate poor perfusion and that sausage-shaped mass in the right iliac fossa um, managing them locally um, experienced uh, radiologists can offer an air enema but there is a 50% acute reoccurrence rate um, but these children really do need assessment stabilization and transferring to a mm -hmm. surgical center differentials for this can include a malrotation although this normally occurs with bilious vomiting is more of a significant feature and if there's problems with a meckles which is a persistence of the vitelointestinal duct that occurs about two feet from the ileocecal valve in about two percent of the population that's normally associated with significant bleeding and is associated with pain due to ectopic gastric mucosa that is ulcerating again these children uh, often need management in a surgical center um, and identification of the meckles can occur through a technetium label scan mm. um, which picks up about 75 percent of them great okay what about um say for example the first presentation um it's a query appendicitis but that's been effectively ruled out i find that quite a difficult situation to deal with in terms of what do i say to the parents now yes absolutely so when we're talking about our scenario of the haven't found anything wrong um, we are within the realms of recurrent abdominal pain so the things to say about recurrent abdominal pain is we're focusing on pain that's lasted for more than three months and that that is important but um, it, talking about pain that actually impacts on function so what are these children unable to do how is it impacting on the family's function as well are parents having to take time off work are they missing a significant amount of school um, it's often associated with significant other symptoms which may be functional such as significant fatigue limb pain uh, headache um, 
and uh, myalgia. Um, and so the aim of this part of the podcast is to help you manage that that group. Um, so with this with this group of patients, it's worth bearing in mind that if you were to compare pain scores in a similar group of children to our recurrent abdominal pain, you know, just taken from the playground, you'd find as common uh, a prevalence of abdominal pain and as severe pain scores as you would in your clinic. It's generally when it starts impacting on the function of the child that there tends to be problems. So this occurs in about 10 to 15 percent of children and the pain can last for at least three months and it's about how we investigate and manage them. Overall, if there's no red flags, and we'll chat through our red flags in terms of the history and examination, but if there are no red flags, we probably only find disease in less than 5% of them. And that's even if you do all the blood tests, you do uh, ultrasound, you do MRI scan, you do endoscopy on all of them. Um, and it's important to say that to parents at the outset, that what you're doing is you're using a range of investigations that's likely to pick up the really important big hitters such as celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease um, and parents often wonder about cancer as well and you're, you're looking for that in your assessment but that just because they've got pain it's not a shortage of investigations it's more a balance of how many investigations you can do before you start running into morbidity significant distress associated with the investigations and it's just a practical rationalization of those strategies uh, investigation strategies and there's also the phenomenon i guess of the more you investigate the higher um, the anxiety levels get and the more that the child and the parent believe well there must be something wrong because they they're still looking for it yes one of the hardest things that uh, parents and children have to cope with is the scenario of the doctor doesn't know what's going on so when you look at these children uh, knowing those additional factors um, the most important thing is to exclude organic disease that's what our patients expect of us so what we do is we do a detailed history and examination looking for signs and symptoms of organic disease so these red flags so in terms of constitutional symptoms do they have objective fever weight loss poor growth or faltering growth, uh, joint symptoms in terms of a red hot swollen joint rather than just pain, um, or significant skin rashes, so erythema nodosum, um, uh, pyoderma gangrenosum that goes with inflammatory bowel disease, or dermatitis epitiformis that goes with celiac. Uh, vomiting, particularly if it's bile stained is concerning, pain that awakes the child from sleep. We do have many children who have screaming abdominal pain with significant pain scores in the nine or tens where when they fall asleep they're fast asleep overnight and there aren't many diseases that do that um, pain that's the aptly in 1950 said the further away pain is from the umbilicus the more likely it is to be organic and that's true so um, pain that's in the right eye fossil or referred to the back or shoulders again a bit more concerning um, urinary symptoms are also a red flag for urinary pathology and a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease or peptic ulcer disease 
does increase the likelihood that children have can have that as well, but also gives you an idea as to what the parental ideas, concerns and expectations are going to be. You may not have to do all of the investigations the parents um, are for diseases that parents are concerned about, but you have to be able to explain why you're not going to do them. Um, also, do they have any perianal signs like perianal skin tags or fissures, uh, fistulas? Uh, any occult or gross blood in the stool? Again, would be red flags. Mm, you know, it may be um, a bit of blood in the stool associated with a large stool motion uh, associated with a fissure, and that's less concerning. But blood that's mixed in with the stool associated with diarrhea several times a day would make you think much more about inflammatory bowel disease. And it would be fair to say that. Um, about 10 to 15 percent of our patients with Crohn's disease are picked up 18 months after they first develop symptoms and present to the doctor. So there are a few children who are languishing out there with uh, chronic symptoms who do have an underlying disease. The other bit in when you're doing these questions is to find out a little bit about the social history and the family illness history. You definitely have to consider the anxiety within the family, think about the stress and think about perpetuating factors, but don't have a distinct section in your history marked organic conditions and then non-organic questions <laughs> that I must ask because patients will uh, work that out and it can change the dynamic of the consultation mm. adversely. Um, if on the other hand you mix it in with okay anybody else in the family unwell, oh anybody else in the family got sort of functional problems with their bowel so anybody got ir irritable bowel syndrome, anybody incapacitated by their functional bowel mm. symptoms um, and that would be a bit more of a concerning uh, pointer because mm. the, you know if you've got a family history of somebody falling and functionally really struggling because of that pain it may point towards the child following a similar model mm. if they've got that as an example mm. um, the anxiety level of the parents is absolutely important to bear in mind in this um, because you are taking your parents with you if 90% 90 of your patients, uh, sorry, if, if your parents all understand what you say and agree with what you're saying in terms of the likely functional nature of the condition, 90% of the children will get better. However, if the parents don't buy into what you're saying, less than 10% of the children get better because the parents will just find somebody else. And the pain is really real. It's not made up, but it's just not caused by mm. disease. Those numbers are really interesting. Where do they come from? Uh, so they are. Um, there's quite a lot of epidemiological data around recurrent abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. There's also been two Cochrane reviews um, published on its treatment, um, so which has helped. Um, in terms of knowing what it is that's causing the pain, this is a really important step for parents: is to give them a label for the pain. So we. The Rome, uh, there was a Rome meeting of paediatric gastroenterologists, which is now in its fourth phase, mm -hmm. um, and they have set out criteria for functional dyspepsia, which is pain associated with uh, problems with eating in terms of nausea, increased pain, or feeling like you want to vomit. Um, there is, uh, so that's functional dyspepsia. There is abdominal pain associated with change or formal frequency of stool, the ubiquitous irritable bowel mm. syndrome, which our adult colleagues know so much of. Um, and then in the middle, 
the mid-gut, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, you can get functional abdominal pain. So that is uh, pain that is not influenced by eating or defecating, but is still causing a significant problem greater than 25% of the time. There is a fourth group, which are children who are generally well, but have clusters of very significant abdominal pain, sometimes associated with headache, uh, sometimes associated with significant vomiting that can be enough to get them dehydrated. And this is the abdominal migraine cyclical vomiting spectrum. 80% uh, of them have a family history of migraines. Um, and there's also an interesting association with travel sickness. In terms of the triggers, however, coming back to the other three groups, so functional dyspepsia, functional abdominal pain and irritable bowel syndrome, the triggers can be divided up into two groups really. There's the physical triggers such as a recent illness or post-viral uh, syndrome, uh, food intolerance or a poor diet, uh, constipation, lack of exercise, so they're really sedentary, mm. uh, and a chronic illness. Excess medications, such as non-steroidals or antispasmodics, can make things worse if they're not improving things, because often children can say to their parents, my tummy hurts, and parents will go to the cupboard and give them something. The child knows that it doesn't make a blind bit of difference. The parents suspect that it doesn't make a blind bit of difference, but they fulfilled their obligations as a parent to try to relieve their child's pain. And it is really important to break that cycle just as we have done in adults with uh, non-steroidal induced headaches, for mm. example. But the psychological ones, uh, triggers, um, include the death or illness of a family member, separation, um, anxiety of children, for example, when they mm. go to school, uh, significant parental anxiety or child child anxiety around that's pervasive and goes into other situations as well um, and the inability that they have that the family group have to reassure themselves uh, school issues are an obvious trigger mm -hmm. but if you think back to what you would have replied to a stranger asking you about school if somebody had said, well, how's school going? You'd have said, fine, without any engagement of higher faculties in your brain. And what you probably want to do is try and find a way of delving a little bit deeper. To, so to say, you know, are the three things you like about school? Are the three things that you really struggle with at school? Mm. For ch littler children, I do use the three wishes technique where I say, if I was a powerful magician and I had to give you three wishes, what would you what would you wish for? And you have to be prepared for Xbox or, um, <laughs> uh, or, or, a, or a pony or something like that. But also be prepared for, I wish granddad was still alive. The beauty of the three wishes technique is it's one thing that parents can't jump in with an answer for their children. That's and it, it's really important to have that uh, direct conversation with the child. So the, the child is part of this discussion not just sitting as a passive bystander while parents talk in often quite emotive terms about the symptoms that their children are having other things include yes peer relationships poverty and geographical move you may not be able to do anything about them but it's important important to know mm. so the, the things to know about functional pain 
The underlying principle is something called biophysical modelling. So the child has responded to biological factors, so say an illness, but their recovery is definitely influenced by temperament. If they're significantly anxious or their parents and school are significantly anxious, um, that can allow the persistence of symptoms and the persistence of pain signals to the brain even when there is no evidence of a disease process happening at the gut mucosal level. So what you get is you get upregulation of pain receptors at the enteric level, the spinal level and the cerebral level um, and demonstrable increase in nociceptive or pain transmitters at the bowel. Um, so you get increased substance P and other kind of painful neurotransmitters and that potentiates the uh, enteric nervous system. And this is made worse by stress. And it is definitely made better by understanding what the pain is, by normalizing it, by the people who are around the child normalizing it and where you can by helping them manage stress. We know that parental distraction is better than parental distress. And what we would encourage our parents to move to is towards a, a life coach model of helping their children rather than a protector, you know, preventing children from feeling any pain whatsoever. Um, whilst that might have been good when they were toddlers, definitely not good when they are older um, and helping children prepare for life's up and downs including management of pain um, is really important. Uh, Thomas Maudsley said that um, uh, a pain is what other organs feel when the patient is unable to weep which is a very kind of and that was 200 years ago um, and he you know that that ability for stress to come through in other ways in terms of symptoms such as pain, fatigue, you know, it's it's indicating a slightly, you know, and I'm struggling to cope. But these children are often very high achievers, very intelligent, they're pleasers, and they often struggle to express what they're feeling and particularly to tell their parents if they don't want to do something. So it must actually be really helpful for these patients and their parents to understand how this process is actually happening. Oh it absolutely is and it helps them to buy into what you're saying. What you're saying is that the gut isn't a static tube, it does contract as the day goes on. So you get peristalsis of the gut throughout the day and night but during the day you get these giant migrating contractions that run the length of the bowel um, that last for about 15 to 30 minutes and are in if the bowel is very sore can be acutely painful and generally the first episode of abdominal pain is after the child's had breakfast Mm -hmm. that time for most parents that 30 minutes an hour where you either go to school or you're off for the day, and um, if you if you're if you have a significant bout of abdominal pain, parents go well, okay, well that's it, and you know you make parents then make plans for the rest of the day, and then they think, oh my child's better again, <laughs> and then another giant migrating contraction happens, and the child's really sore and on the sofa, and the parents get, oh no, it was right for me to be yeah. off off today, but oh my god, what am I going to do with work now? Yeah. Um, so now you, when you come back to your 
patient, you've got a lot more information as to how to manage them. You can definitely do your history and examination looking for those red flags. You can definitely give them a diagnosis and then you do your targeted investigations. But the important bit is to do them focused and just once and directed by the symptoms. And you can code it with, I think you're fine, but we'll just check. And you definitely, definitely do full blood count, ESR, CRP, celiac screen when they're on a gluten containing diet, so TTG, IgA with a total IgA. You definitely do a stool sample. If they've got symptoms of dyspepsia, check a helicobacter stool antigen. If they've got lower bowel symptoms, check a fecal calprotectin and uh, microscopy culture and sensitivity. And if there's concerns about parasites, have a look with overcysts and parasites. Urine dip, if they've got urinary symptoms, Although the evidence base points away from routine ultrasounds in these children, it, I do find it quite useful for parents who are really struggling with their anxiety. It helps them know that we've had a detailed look around and basically tells them that there isn't cancer. And that's the bit that will keep them awake at three o'clock in the morning. Um, and, and then that maybe you, takes a block away and allows them to listen to the rest of what you uh, said. Absolutely. You won't be able to move along until they are happy that you've excluded disease. Mm. Um, and then you move on to the, when we've got the results, it was a, it's a two-step dance. You move on to, uh, well, we thought the tests were going to be fine and we thought it might be functional. Now we've got the test back and we now, that, now know that it is fine. Talk about how to sell this. So it, depending on where parents are, I can, uh, you can either talk on the simpler end of the spectrum and talk about children getting butterflies in the tummy before, a, you know, as we all would before a big interview or a first date. Um, but it can be very, very painful for some children and your child is, is on the sig significant end of this spectrum. It doesn't make it more likely to be disease, however. And many parents may have friends or colleagues or family relatives who have irritable bowel syndrome mm -hmm. and drawing on their experience of it being inc incredibly painful, affecting them on certain days. Most days they just get on and function. In some of our some of our families, I talk about period pain. Um, obviously, can't I have to say I can't comment myself, but it you know is incredibly painful, and yet five you know five days ish out of every month, and you function, you get through, and it gets easier. I also talk about um, gut hypersensitivity for those families who want that level and talk about how you can modify um, your pain thresholds up or down. Mm. And I talk about childbirth, um, you know, that, that childbirth is undoubtedly incredibly painful. But if you think back to how you how you are were through childbirth, if you think about how how it was in the process when you knew what was going on you knew what to expect you knew to breathe through the contractions and that helps a bit if on the other hand you've got a midwife who comes in and goes oh this is worrying I've not seen this before <laughs> or you know and takes you to that edge suddenly you've got um, pain and anxiety and that worry about how your baby is and all of those bits and it makes the pain scores that bit worth worse and it becomes a much less controlled mm. process and trying to manage the both does make things a little bit more bearable. Mm. Um, 
And then what you do is you're chatting to the family about how to manage it. It's about reassuring them and thinking about how you can functionally manage. You know, it's not likely to go away completely immediately, but it will get a bit better with time. So many of our teenagers see a bit of an improvement. Sometimes it does persist in bursts into into adulthood. We chat about uh, underlying or contributing factors and how to address them, such as diet, lack of exercise. Um, definitely avoid excessive medications because because that could exacerbate the cycle, um, and promote that healthy diet and lifestyle. And obviously, obviously, patients who've been through this significant abdominal pain may well have had their boundaries come in a lot, and their worlds come in a little bit too. So that it's the house and not much else. So it's encouraging them to get out of the house, not avoiding activities in case the pain comes, but being able to get out, do what you wanted to do, even if the pain comes, and getting through it, that's an achievement, and doing it that way around. Um, in terms of school, trying to get them straight into school is very difficult. You know, They'll often have become a little bit deconditioned, so you may need a graded reintroduction to school strategy. If you ask your children, how much they think they could do most of them will overestimate because they want to be nice to you and they'll say maybe oh i think i could do half a day mm. so you go well let's do two hours if they think they can do two hours they go for well let's just do a lesson but do it every day for a week to avoid a sort of boom and bust cycle um, and get them achieving every day for a week and then build up and build up and by the time they've hit their original threshold they thought they could do you're already in a pattern of succeeding and they're much more likely to sustain that into the medium term you know there are significant examples out there uh, Neil Jenkins for example who's a uh, Welsh and British Lions fly half used to vomit before every British Lions game that's just what he did and uh, if you re you know if parents read for example the BFG um, the little girl who's hiding underneath the bed uh, talks about butterflies in the tummy and how much it affected her mm. um, you know there are examples out there in terms of the literature um, that parents can use to reinforce the analogy mm. to themselves and their children so you've talked about a lot of strategies here to help children and their parents cope with the pain and take responsibility for it is there a role for medication either in supplementing these approaches or as a fallback if they're just not working so in terms of the evidence base for medications it is limited the best evidence for helping manage these patients with recurrent abdominal pain is actually towards cognitive behavioral therapy particularly if they've got overwhelming anxiety as part of their presentation uh, for functional dyspepsia uh, ranitidine could possibly have some benefit but the the only study that's there is in 32 patients mm. so not big numbers and not given it very long uh, fibers of no proven benefit probiotics are of no proven benefit and dietary exclusion unless there's a significant family history is of no proven benefit though a third of adults with ibs probably improve on a wheat-free diet mm. so that's possibly worth bearing in mind mm -hmm. Peppermint oil capsules help. Um, so, say from Holland and Barrett, or um, many of my patients are relieved to know that four uh, mint sweets that you can have contain probably as much peppermint oil as a peppermint oil capsule mm. and is much more fun to take. Mm. So, um, that's worth bearing in mind. Uh, Pizotifen definitely helps in abdominal migraine. Antispasmodics like Buscapan or Mebevirin have often been tried by the time that you see them. If they haven't, they've probably got a success rate of about 
15 to 20%, so it's not great. But if you wanted to do that as part of the overall explanation, mm -hmm. rather than focusing on medicines as the only way of getting the better, because the biggest thing is the reassurance mm. and managing function and getting them back on a pathway of reintegration. Mm. Thank you so much, Mark. I think you've covered an awful lot here. Really useful information. I'm sure the listeners will agree. Um, and it's great to have you back on the podcast again. So thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's very kind. Thanks indeed. Again, as well as the information on acute presentations, I think it's so useful to have a framework for thinking about recurrent abdominal pain. And so thinking about functional dyspepsia, functional abdominal pain and IBS as arising from the upper, mid and lower GI tract is really useful. It was good to explore some of the ideas around biophysical modelling upregulation of the pain receptors, how the enteric nervous system is potentiated, and the overlap, which we all intuitively know is real, between our mental state and our, our physical symptoms, which is really nicely described in that quote from Thomas Maudsley, that pain is what other organs feel when the patient is unable to weep. Mark touched on abdominal migraine, a fourth category of abdominal pain, and this is a subject which will be covered in detail in an episode I recorded recently with Dr Charlie Powell, a local GP. So do listen out for that. And again, if you like what you hear, please rate and review this podcast. And if you have any suggestions for future podcasts, do email me, carolinestory at fontanellepod at gmail.com. For now... From Fontenelle, goodbye.